Welcome to Pathways to Hope and Healing, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals, but licensed counselors are available at the Nampa Family Justice Center. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, or elder abuse, please call the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. Welcome to another edition of Pathways to Hope and Healing. I'm Corey Michaels, along with Detective Corporal Angela Weeks, retired Nampa Family Justice Center, Family Justice Center Foundation of Idaho president. What don't you do, Angela? Um, you know, I don't sing very well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. So we'll have Angela sing on another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to introduce our guest this week? Absolutely. Um, super excited to have Dr. Matt Cox here with us. He is actually the medical director with Children at Risk Evaluation Services that is part of St. Luke's Hospital that is on site at the Nampa Family Justice Center taking care of our kiddos um, who are alleged victims of physical and sexual abuse, neglect. Um, we um, are fortunate to have him come up here from Texas where he um, was previously to coming to Idaho, but just a fantastic resource in our community and so passionate about the work he does with kids in our community. Well, welcome, Dr. Cox. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, now, what what part of Texas were you in? Well, I grew up in the Houston suburbs, so right uh, next to NASA, NASA, the Johnson Space Center. Uh, and but I lived and practiced in Dallas for 12 years, so two different ends of Texas. Oh yeah, no, I have a couple of daughters down in uh, Fort Worth area. Yeah. So, well, wonderful. Now, what what originally when you were go, going through medical school and doing did you already know you wanted to be a pediatrician? I have always kind of enjoyed working directly with children. I gravitated to. Uh, working with children as a high schooler. I coached swimming, and my summertime job was at the YMCA, and I ran a daycare uh, slash swim lessons for three- to Mm five-year-olds, and I kind of found a home there. Uh, But through medical school, you know, the first two years is all book work, and then you have clinical experiences and uh, taking care of adults and gynecology patients and uh, psychiatry patients just didn't give me the same kind of feel as when I did my peds rotation, and I really felt at home there. Uh, So I always kind of knew I was gravitating towards children, uh, but doing the rotation, it became very clear that that was when I was at my best. And now your subspecialty of of children that have been abused in abusive situations, sexually, domestically, um, when did that part kind of come into play? When I started my residency training as a pediatrician, you do rotations with a little bit of everything. And in my second month of my residency, uh, I took a one-week rotation with a center much like the Nampa Justice Center. 
They specifically did child uh, sexual and physical abuse evaluations in this small clinic in Nashville. And I really found a home with those people. You know, what they did, their passion for what they did, the kind of work they did, the type of interactions you had with the children uh, all really seemed to be of interest to me. And until that moment, I didn't know one could train to be a specialist in child abuse evaluations. And actually, when I was training, it wasn't a identified subspecialty of pediatrics. That came uh, over a decade later when it was actually identified as a subspecialty by the American Board of Pediatrics. Uh, so when I started my work in child abuse and did fellowship training, it was before it was officially recognized as a subspecialty. But it was an area that I needed more experience uh, and training to be able to conduct those evaluations. So I did fellowship training after residency because it really felt like the right road for me. Uh, and then ended up leaving Philadelphia where I did fellowship and moving to Dallas where I spent 12 years. Uh, and really, it's what I was meant, meant to do mm-hmm. because it's both working with kids and working with vulnerable kids, but it's a lot of education. And I, I love being an educator um, and one who's kind of helping kids who are at their uh, most troubling stage. Um, the, the, the kids who are traumatized or kids who are experiencing trauma of some sort. Uh, and those are the vulnerable kids that need the most help. And it's uh, a area that I can't imagine myself doing anything other than what I do today. I love listening to you talk about that because I so relate to you. 26 years in law enforcement, and I um, dedicated most of my career to um working um, in crimes against children, crimes against, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault. One of the things people ask me all the time is, how do you survive that? Because I committed like 18 years of my career to this work. And you have committed your many, many years to this work. How do you survive it? Uh, I'm actually at 19 years this year as a uh, doctor who specializes in child abuse evaluation. So I'm a little behind you, but not too far behind you in a sheer number of years doing this. And how do I survive it? Um, It's hard some days, no doubt about it. And there are cases that really are very traumatic. But then you have cases where you really feel like you make an impact. And even if it's not, you know, an immediate impact, you know you can have an impact on a child's well-being improving Uh, And I hold on to a few of those cases. In my office at work, I have pictures of a couple children that just are near and dear to my heart. Um, I often tell a story when I'm uh, talking about what I do and why I do it. And it was a little boy who was severely abused. He was three years old. He was severely physically abused. He was severely neglected. It was by his mother and mother's boyfriend. And it was a long, convoluted course And he ended up spending two weeks in the hospital recovering from this severe physical abuse and malnutrition. Uh, But I saw him each and every day in the hospital. And uh, he kind of knew what my role was. And I talked to him every day. And I saw him improving every day. And about day five or six of checking on him every day, I knocked on the door one day. And I walked in the room. And he rolled over. And he looked at me and said, Dr. Pepper, I want watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) and his aunt and uncle who became his mom and dad and i all kind of looked at each other very confused 
why he was asking Dr. Pepper for watermelon. We knew he was hungry and we were limiting what he was able to eat because of his malnutrition issues. Uh, but then it quickly came to me that we were in Texas. Dr. Pepper's kind of like water there. Yeah. And that was the doctor he knew. That's awesome. And it was just that kind of moment of, I know I was a big difference. I had the great honor of watching his adoption hearing. And we'll forever remember watching that little four-year-old boy uh, playing with the judge's gavel as the judge was officially uh, giving custody to his aunt and uncle who became his mom and dad. Uh, and I will forever kind of remember that. Yeah. Um, because that is a case I know I made a huge difference. Uh, so on a terrible day, I try and think of someone like him. Yep. Um, and then you also have to think that no one else is doing it. Someone needs to do it. Yeah. And there are ways to do it. And you find creative ways to kind of take care of yourself. I've developed a million different hobbies um, because a lot of bad habits can come with the kind of work you do, uh, bad choices and such. And uh, I found initially it was running, and I started running uh, just for health, and then it became a group of friends. And 14 marathons later, wow. I uh, realized that it was just a way of kind of dealing with the trauma and stress of my job. Um, I do kind of crafty things myself, uh, but that's another way. I'm doing art glass pieces. Working with stained glass is another way that's therapeutic for me. Breaking glass mm -hmm. can be a little therapeutic, but you're creating something beautiful. Uh, and I've given a piece of kind of what I've built to our, our clinic in Boise uh, as a kind of waiting room piece. And it's just something that is me taking personal time for me, and I create something. So lots of different things that I do over time to kind of keep myself busy. Uh, but give me an outlet. So I also know that you've taken one of those creative things and actually taken it even further in this work that we do. Um, I know that you make these really colorful, creative soaps, but you didn't just stop with that hobby that you have. You saw a very specific need um, with the kids that we work with, and I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more about that. Sure. That, that is another case of a, a hobby of mine that kind of blew up on its own. Um, but soap making, so uh, cold process soap making was something I learned to do. Uh, and when I got married a few years ago in lieu of gifts, we asked our friends and family to donate to a nonprofit we were creating. And the nonprofit, it's called Jessica's Trunk, is a nonprofit that provides suitcases to children who are new to foster care. So children who've experienced trauma and then have the trauma of being removed from their parents' care and placed with someone else often go with absolutely nothing of their own. Um, so it was a way of giving them something of their very own, a few new items of clothes from the clothes closet and then their very own suitcase. So Jessica's Trunk to raise funds has, uh, we've developed our fundraising campaign is uh, cleaning up for foster kids. And we uh, asked for donations uh, for soap that is handcrafted. Uh, and we've raised several thousand dollars making soap, uh, which enables us to, uh, we've given out over 130 suitcases in the last few years to kids new to foster care. And that's another one of those moments professionally. You're working with kids at their worst and who've been through that trauma. Mm -hmm. And just the sheer joy of a simple gift, a 30 or $40 new piece of luggage that they wheel out with. It's just one of those heartwarming moments that reminds you why you do what you do. 
because you can make a difference even with a small gesture. Absolutely. So I actually, so you know the fact that, you know, a couple of my cases very personal to me are the reasons that the Nampa Family Justice Center started. Uh, two very significant child abuse cases and then a, a third one that I was involved in that year. And people, when they ask me that, I always say, you know what? There's nothing greater than being a hero to a child. Um, and it really motivated me to work on the Nampa Family Justice Center, which takes the concept of a uh, child Advocacy Center that you're familiar with coming from Texas, but really going beyond just child abuse and focusing on domestic violence and sexual assault, and elder abuse and human trafficking. You've been part of our team now at this Family Justice Center um, for, gosh, I don't remember how, five years? Has it been five years? Can you tell me a little bit about the experience of being part of a professional being at the Family Justice Center and what it does for the kiddos you work with? I think... The biggest aspect of the Family Justice Center or a Child Advocacy Center is the fact that it's a way that all the different people who are involved in these cases uh, have a means to collaborate and work together. Better things happen for kids who are victimized by their families when people doing their individual jobs work together. Yeah. So it is a great way of developing a uh, united approach to a kid. Everyone has their own job. Law enforcement's doing a criminal investigation. Child welfare is looking at the safety of a child. From a medical perspective, we're looking at the physical health and well-being of a child, but also the emotional health and well-being of that child. Um, but so much of it is that conversation. As a pediatrician, a lot of it is education mm -hmm. about what the injury is, what type of mechanism causes that. Um, what other disease processes could contribute to what's going on and why we have to evaluate there. Uh, but really the, the Family Justice Center ad, or advocacy kind of movement is a means of getting all the people in the same room to work together because yeah. that synergy of that team is really when the best outcomes happen. Yeah. And you and I have had multiple cases where we've had that experience where I've either been able to call you or you've been able to call me and say, hey, this kiddo showed up in our clinic. Um, this is a Nampa case. So, you know, Corey, yeah. when we talk about that collaboration, it's been amazing. I bet. Well, it, and that's what it takes. It, you know, the old saying, it takes a village. Well, this is a perfect example of that. It takes everyone doing what their specialty is to do what is right for our kiddos. Absolutely. And to know that the, it's so much bigger than our own little piece of the pie that um, we can understand and actually just really wrap um, our clients in these services um, where I might not be able to bring everything to the table. It's not my job right. to bring everything to the table. But when I know that I have Dr. Cox there, when I know that I have a licensed counselor, when I know that I I have somebody that can offer some advocacy support and, and follow up with them. Um, it actually does make my job easier. Uh, and I think you'd probably agree too, because we want to, we want to do everything before the family justice center, before I had victim advocates, before I had these relationships, I would go out to these calls and I just had this need. I needed to do more and I didn't have enough time in my day to do more. And when I um, realized I don't have to do all of this by myself, that's really the concept of a family justice center and how not only can I just call them, but literally they're in the building with me. Do you experience any of that? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's not only you can't do everything, but there are people who can do their jobs better than what you could do. Yeah. So rely on their expertise and their skill set to be able to fully meet the needs of those kids. 
Uh, and that's so important. I mean, the Family Justice Center model is so important because, you know, child abuse is not an isolated thing. You know, family violence and child abuse are a very common co-occurrence. The domestic violence, the mom being a victim of abuse herself or the father, uh, coupled with the child is very common. So having the ability to treat the whole family unit in one place and evaluate it and advocate for them is just so important to get their needs met, yeah. particularly with our high-risk populations that don't often have the ability to go out and seek their own help. So having everything in one place is going to facilitate their access to the services they need. Absolutely. Corey, I've got to tell you one thing that I remember stuck out to me, and I told you about this earlier, and, and it's again there today, but I remember when I first met Dr. Cox, his bow tie. Yes. His, but it's, they're always different. I mean, I don't know how many bow ties you have, but he has a ton of them. And I always think, um, you know, when he's meeting a child, do they stand out like they do to me? And I can't imagine they don't. But how many bow ties do you have? Well, I, I also have a habit there. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, about a year ago, a really good friend's mom uh, took on the adventure of teaching me how to sew. So she is a master quilter. So the wow. idea was she was going to teach me the beginnings of learning to quilt. Well, that opened a brand new Pandora's box in my life, and I learned about uh, quilt shops and the quality of beautiful fabrics at quilt shops. Yeah, the so colors. <laughs> I, I now make my own bow ties, and I might have well over 100. Was there something related to the work that kept you, either started getting you to wear them all the time or um, the interaction that you have with kids? Because they've got to comment on them and notice them the way I do. They, they do. They remember it more. Yes. You're the guy in the bow tie yeah. kind of thing, um, which that, that always kind of just makes me smile a little bit, something memorable. It started about a decade ago, and it was really around Christmas time. Someone gifted me one, and I said, that's a unique look. And then I realized as a pediatrician who's dealing with sick kids and little kids who like to pull on things, having a regular tie on was a weapon yeah. they could pull on. Uh, but also from a hygiene standpoint, sick kids and the things they do and touch, and then they're touching you, it's a little more hygienic. But it's also, I tend to be unique, and it's my way of being unique uh, in that regard. So it's kind of just become my thing. Uh, when, on days that I either don't wear a bow tie or those days that I actually wear a regular tie, it normally leads to many people commenting about why yeah <laughs> because this has just become my thing yeah well i want to i want to thank you both for everything that you have dedicated your lives to to the nampa family justice center and to all your work with the kids doctor because those services weren't always available they weren't there and i i know when <clears throat> When I was uh, a baby, I was in a abusive situation. Um, I luckily don't remember any of that. Uh, but at 18 months old, was left for dead. And, well, was left with some people so that birth mother could go get high somewhere. Yeah. And was going to be back in a few hours. Well, the few hours turned into a few days. <clears throat> and the most... Uh, Wonderful parents any, uh, any person could ever have, um, my adoptive parents, got a phone call saying that from this 
woman um, that had me and saying that uh, the this baby won't quit screaming and her husband was going to toss him in the pool. And so my mom and dad uh, came over and got me and immediately took me to the hospital where they said I, because my, uh, the, the issues going on with my lungs and everything that I, I would have died if they hadn't have come and got me and they adopted me. And I had the, I was blessed with the most wonderful childhood anyone could ever have. Not all cases worked out that way, especially back, you know, in the late sixties and and seventies and well, really eighties. It's, it's been something that has been becoming more and more prevalent so that more and more kids can have that wonderful future that they should have. And uh, so thank you both. Absolutely. Thank you for willing, being willing to share that experience because I will tell you that those stories are not uncommon to those of us who work in this profession. But um, it's one of those things when we get to see the outcomes um, yeah. of things that did go right. Um, it's one of the most rewarding things I actually, um, when I retired from the police department last year, one of the posts on my page was from someone who had a very similar story to yours. Um, and I'm the officer that removed her when she was a baby and placed her with her family that, that I now know. And she actually went on my retirement page and commented on that. And so sometimes it takes us years to get to see the outcomes of something yeah. like that. And we know the impact of uh, ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And we know that we ju- I think at the Family Justice Center especially, we just believe we have an incredible role in hope and healing. And um, I think that we're um, so blessed that we get the opportunity to be even a portion of that process in somebody's um, pathway to moving towards that. Yeah. And I think the other aspect there that's so important with the family justice model is it's all-inclusive services. So it's the initial intake that person seeking help for the first time but it also includes the therapy and the support services they need to kind of get a better life started for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so much of this work is a beatdown because day in and day out you see bad things. And there's recent research that talks about compassion satisfaction. So people in this line of work can burn out because you just see bad thing after bad thing. Um, but it's clearly been shown when you are exposed to people with really good outcomes that reignites your fire to do what you do. So with a family justice center model, when they're going to counseling at your building or they're seeking services and getting the support and you get to see them down the road when their life is on better track, really provides that satisfaction, that reminder of why we do what we do because we make a difference. And that's the beauty of working with them long-term is you get to really see them emerge from the ashes, if you will, to something much greater. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Cox, now, now, how can folks be able to uh, help out with the cleaning up for foster kids and jessicastrunk.org? Yeah, jessicastrunk.org is our kind of website, uh, mm-hmm. and it's something you can contact me directly if you're interested. I, mm-hmm. I might have a lot of soaps that I kind of work on because it is a therapy, but uh, making contact with me through jessicastrunk.org and uh, inquiring and uh, donations are always welcome. Uh, They can be brought in my name to the Justice Center and um, there frequently and can be able to 
put those into our inventory and then distribute those to kids at need that we're seeing. Well, and if you go to jessicastrunk.org, which I hope you do and I encourage you to do, this so some of these soaps you do not want to actually use because they are works of art. Uh, the first one was the Starry Nights that I that I saw and fell in love with Van Gogh's uh, Starry Night, and it was it just it it captured me when I when I saw that, uh, and really what and even all the other ones the beautiful colors and and designs and everything that are in there. I don't know how you do it, but it's awesome. thank you and it's fun to be creative it's a good Uh, outlet to kind of help you through things now is this something do you and your husband do this together or well jason's the one who taught me how to make soap yeah somehow i'm now the only soap maker (laughs) (laughs) i guess he runs the the nonprofit, and i'm the the worker bee in that regard okay you still get get the outlet then yes (laughs) yes well all of the the links to both the Nampa Family Justice, how to be able to uh, get a hold of Dr. Cox, and how you can be able to help with jessicastrunk.org are all in the description here of the podcast. And we thank you so much for your time and, and what you do. Thank you for the opportunity to talk today. So glad you were here. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for another edition of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Again, if you or someone you know have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700. Search the Nampa Family Justice Center on Facebook and Instagram for more conversations. If you have suggestions for topics you would like us to cover or get more information about anything you heard in today's episode, contact us through the email at fjc at cityofnampa.us.